Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. I love that carol. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful reminder to us uh, as we head into these uh, days before Christmas. And... um, I want to just kind of re-emphasize or remind, especially if you weren't here right at the beginning, uh, we do have our Christmas Eve services, 2, 4, 6, and 11. The first three are identical. The last one will be a little different. They all end, though, to singing Silent Night by Candlelight. The last one will also include communion. And to help you, not just you be there, but for you to invite others, we've mentioned and we have this CD that our our arts ministry has put together that uh, has four carols that we will be singing in that service to, uh, on, on, on Christmas Eve. That, and on the back is the times, and you can take these and give them to folks. As a, it's a great tool. I've given some away, and, and um, I'm planning to give more away as a great tool to invite, to encourage. Because we know uh, that people are more open to coming to church on Christmas Eve and and enjoying that as a part of their life than probably any other time of the year. And we want to help them do that. We want to encourage them to do that. We don't do it because we want to see what kind of a number count we can get, but because we're here to make a difference in lives. We're here to tell there's a good news in Jesus Christ, and we want the world to know it. We want the world to experience it. And it's not enough for us to have that good news. It is that we need to share it. And so we've given you this as a, as a tool. We've also provided, uh, we have bookmarks out there for reading, daily readings during this Christmas season if, if you want to do that. But the other part of it is that, that we are trying to invite others into our home, if you will, at Christmas. And, and because it's our home, that means we need to do the work. We need to do some of the preparation. We need to welcome our guests. And so uh, we also have places for you to sign up, to serve on Christmas Eve. We need about 400 volunteers on Christmas Eve for all that goes on here. And we, as of last week, we had about 250, so we need about 150 more. And I, I would hope, it's my hope and, and encouragement, that by the end of this day, that that will all be taken care of, that many of you will do that. It, it, because if we understand that, that it is about Christ, and we're going to be talking some about worship this morning and focusing on him, then it's not ultimately just about what do I get out of it, but what do I I do as a part of what God wants to do? How can I join in him and his redemptive work? That Christmas Eve is not simply a holiday for me, a, a, a time for me to enjoy. If it is, then, then at the end of the day, it always, it, by the end of the day on Christmas, sometimes it seems flat. But if it is, we understand a part of God's redemptive work and we can have a role in that. We can have a part in that. We can be used by God then as we invite, as we serve on that day then we, we help make Christmas not just a one-day experience, but a lifetime adventure. For a lot of people around this room, there are some of you who have come to, came here on the, for the first time on Christmas Eve and that have come to faith in Jesus Christ since then. And, and that is our hope and our, our prayer in all of this, that it's not about us. 
and, and we are here for the sake of others. We do not exist for ourselves. If we exist for ourselves, then we have bought into a consumer culture. We bought into the world around us that it's all about us. We deserve this, all that kind of stuff. And that is so unhealthy because you keep taking that to the nth degree and you discover there's never enough. But when it is about Christ and when it is about pointing people to him, and as we join in that journey, then we discover that God can do so much more. And our life is not about how much we get. Our life is the privilege we have to give. To give through invitation, to give through serving others. And it's a, it's a tradition here that many do to serve. I want to encourage you to take a step further than perhaps what you've ever done before and use this. Jesus came. Jesus didn't take Christmas as a day for him to sit back and relax. Scripture says he emptied himself and became flesh and blood. He did it for us. He calls us to follow him. And so we do it for the sake of those who aren't in this room today. That makes Christmas work. If it's all about me and my presence, I'm going to always, at the end of the day, it's never enough. But if it's about Jesus Christ, there's never an end to what he can do. So I'll encourage you on that. We're in this series called Christmas. Oh, by the way, you, you see these lights. Those of you who were with us on Christmas Eve remember that we had some lights up, but the lights did some extra things on Christmas Eve. And you, in fact, you can go to our Facebook page. I think that video has been pulled back up. I'll just, just a hint. There might be a little more that happens than, than just these lights coming on and off. So just, just throw that out there. Anyway, we're, we're, we're in a series about carols, looking at the biblical truths that come to us through the carols we sing. And as Brandon mentioned, we're, we're looking today at O Come, All Ye Faithful, a beautiful carol that calls us to worship. O Come, let us adore him. And it and, and other carols like uh, uh, a joy to the world. And even we three kings have that as an important part of what they talk about. We often think, you know, of, of attending church. We come here and that's worship. But, but the truth of the matter is coming to church and worship are not the same thing. We can attend church without worshiping. And I would suggest to you, even in this last 35 minutes already, there have been times when you have been in here attending worship, attending church, but not worshiping. And, and we can, the flip side of those, we can worship without ever coming into a building that is called a church. It, 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 they're not one and the same. There are similarities, but they're not. Just as there are similarities between football and attending church, big game tonight, um, there's some terms that kind of apply in both places. For instance, a draw play is what many children do with their bulletins while they're in the service. A bench warmer is someone who doesn't stand, sing, or do anything else during the service. Backfield in motion is making a trip to the restroom or the water fountain or to the coffee shop during the service. Staying in the pocket is what happens to a lot of the money that should be given to the work of the Lord. <laughs> Two-minute warning 
That's the point in which you realize the sermon is almost over and you start gathering up your stuff. I see you. When that head bends down, I know that the last blank has been filled in. Um, Quarterback sneak. Church members quietly leaving during the closing prayer. Uh, Sudden death. What happens to the attention span of the congregation if the preacher goes overtime? (laughs) An end run. Getting out of church quickly without speaking to anyone else. And, And finally, blitz. The, the rush for the restaurant following the closing prayer. <laughs> well, this morning we are, we are uh, there may be some similarities, but we're going to focus on worship this morning because it's a central theme in many carols because it, it is a central theme of the Christmas story, beginning with the angels who announced the birth of Jesus Christ. We read in Luke chapter 2, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Notice, all people. Not just you that are in here right now. The the, the good news of great joy is for all. It's people who, in fact, may think they don't have a place in church or don't want to have anything to do with it. But the good news is it is for them, the angels tell us. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. The angels, in fact, revealed to us what the angels do in heaven. They worship. They worship. And and the word worship comes from an old English word, worth sight. I I put it in the notes. It's up there. Um, Well, no, it's not up there. But it's in your notes. Or worth and ship. Worth ship. And it means to revere, to honor, to ascribe value or worth to another. The announcement of a Savior was worth ascribing all worth and honor to God. The announcement that God was doing this for us was worth affirming that, worth worshiping him. Just think for a moment about about who a Savior is. What, What does that word mean? It means someone who saves us. And and though in the church we may routinely, and, and maybe without even real thought, Say it in a spiritual sense, it's really about saving someone's life, saving them, in fact, within the, the, the confines of the church, saving them forever. Most of us haven't had someone do something in the spur of the moment that literally saved our lives. But, but imagine someone, you're walking along, you start to t- step out into a, a street at a crossing, and you're not paying a lot of attention, and, and there's a bus coming, and someone grabs your arm and pulls you back. You, you wouldn't, at first you're angry, but then as that bus whizzes by, you turn and you look at that person and say, oh my gosh, you saved my life. So what do you think you do then? Why did you go to the trouble? Or, nice to see you, bye. 
Or do you say, oh my gosh, what can I do? You realize in that moment that if it had not been for that person, your life would be over. And and, and in all of our minds, when we have somebody who's done something incredible for us, particularly save us, there is this feeling of what can I do back? What can I do to express appreciation? How can I show my gratitude to you? I guarantee you the folks who were hiding from the shooters in San Bernardino a, a week ago, when they were found by police officers, looked at them as saviors. And we're so grateful when they walk them out in safety. To, to really get at the, the idea of a savior, to, to really not just say the word, but to say what does it mean for someone to be a savior is to save my life. And yet the, the angels didn't announce us a savior, like someone who, who got the shepherds out of a bind or a hard situation. They announced the Savior, the Savior of the world for all time, for all people, in all places. In other words, it wasn't just one person that that this Savior had come to save all of us. The Savior came to save people who aren't in here right now. Why do we make a big deal out of Christmas? Why do we make a big deal about telling others? Because we believe there is good news for them. That their, their lives may feel destitute at times, they may feel lost, they may not know what they're gonna do they may not feel like they have have any hope or any future and we say we have this incredible good news that there is a savior it's not me it's not even us as a church it's jesus christ there is a savior who has saved us from sin and death forever The angels worshipped him because he was the Savior. The shepherds went to the manger scene and worshipped him. The kings, as we'll see, went and worshipped him. The one who saves us from sin and death forever is worth being revered and honored and having all value, all worth ascribed to. And in fact, it's, it's, a, it's a, a total lack of gratitude to do anything else. So you saved my life, but I gotta go. You saved my life, but so what? It doesn't matter. I mean, that would be the, that would be the weird, wouldn't it? I mean, that would just be like something really weird. If somebody said that to you, Paul writes to the Romans, so then my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. To worship God means to humbly acknowledge his greatness, his, his place in our lives that has put him in a situation where his mercy has brought us back, who's willing to do whatever it takes for each one of us and for those we care about and those we around us. In the truest sense, worship is a recognition, a response that God, that God loves us. And he first loved us. 
And all we can do is love him back. Scripture says we love because he first loved us. We don't decide, I want to love God because I think he's a great guy. What Scripture says is we don't even come to that thought until we already have begun to experience the fact that he loves us. In fact, Scripture says that, that in the first moments that we are, he knows already our place. He had a plan and a vision for our lives from the beginning of time. Worship is really kind of the ultimate fulfillment of the great commandment to love God, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. It doesn't say with some. It doesn't say occasionally. It doesn't say a little bit. Worship is loving God. And, and, and I would suggest to you that worship, in fact, is a verb, not a noun. It's not, I'm at worship. I attended worship. I worshiped. I want to tell you, it's night and day difference between a noun and a verb. One is a place, one is something we do. One is just being here, but being here is not worship. And yet we use it that way. There's another great story I alluded to of, of worship that appears in the Christmas story about the wise men. In Matthew chapter 2, it begins, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, magi, and that's the word sometimes used uh, in, in some of the, the original languages or variations of that, they show up in history around the 7th century B.C., so 700 plus years before Christ, among the Medes uh, who lived in northern Persia, then what we would call modern-day Iran. They were a priesthood, and, and at times politically very powerful. They might serve in various positions within the courts that they were a part of, sorcerers, magicians, seers, astrologers of various eastern governments. And from the time of the Jewish prophet Daniel, there's a book in the Old Testament called Daniel that takes place in Babylon after the Jews have been captured by the Babylonians and Jerusalem destroyed in 587 B.C. They are taken off to Babylon, and there in Babylon, there are references by Daniel to Magi and to interactions between the Jews and the Magi. And, and from what we know, there, was, there were large numbers of Jews in that eastern area that, in fact, resided there for centuries. In fact, what we know is that, that some of them continue today, except for some of the war that goes on over there has been driving them out of that area. Um, the Jewish lands where, where Jerusalem was, was later the Babylonians were pushed back uh, it was conquered by the Greeks, then the Romans, and yet the, the, the Babylonian, Persian, those empires were just always off to the east. And so when you were a king or you were a ruler there in Israel, in that land, you always knew that there were, there were potential problems off to your east. And, and so you have Herod, who is king of that area under the, the great king Caesar, 
and Herod is his king, and he gets a little bit nervous that there are magi coming into his midst. Are they on a, a spy mission? What are they here doing? And so there would have been tensions when these wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. There were also some vague Old Testament prophecies that, that foretold their coming, and, and these prophecies probably influenced later stories in which wise men, increasingly, or magi, became called kings. In Psalm 72, it says, the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him, and all nations will serve him. Three different groups of kings listed there. In Isaiah 60, it says, vast caravans of camels will converge on you. The camels of Midian and Ephah, the people of Sheba, will bring gold and frankincense. We ever heard of that before? And will come worshiping the Lord. So from these prophecies and the gifts mentioned here in the prophecy, and, 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 and in Matthew, we start to see the, these alignment of things. And Matthew shows these gifts being given. They were very expensive gifts. And so it was later reasoned that these men must have been kings if they could afford gifts of gold, gifts of frankincense, gifts of myrrh. The Bible doesn't tell us their names. Tradition has attached to them the names of Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar. What's important to us this morning is that these wise men tell Herod that they've witnessed the rising of a new star, which they've interpreted to mean the birth of a, of a powerful king of the Jews. You see, if you're, if you're the king of this area and somebody's coming in telling you there's another king coming and he's going to take your place, you're not particularly happy about that. That was a problem for a paranoid Herod. And so he is... He doesn't know quite what to make. And, and the wise men tell him they have come to worship this newborn king. And, and they, they've departed their homeland in the east to come. And so the story picks up in verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, for that is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can also go and worship him. You know, first it's kind of funny, Bethlehem is only about five miles away from Jerusalem. In fact, today, Bethlehem, Jerusalem has grown up around it, sort of like Houston has grown up around Webster or Clear Lake or whatever. It's not like it was a long way away. It was half a day's walk, easily. Not, not a great distance, but they want, he wants them to go do his, his work for him, to find them, and he, he tells them he wants to go himself and worship. And I always kind of, when I read that, and it's because of a friend of mine a long time ago who read that in a nativity, and he kind of made it sound like snidely whiplash, you know? It, it's just kind of, you kind of almost, I, I kind of imagine that there's this, this character, this melodramatic character who's twisting this mustache and say. And when you find him, go and come back and tell me so that I too can go and worship him. I don't know. You know, that's just, 
Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a little over the top. But I mean, there is clearly insincerity on his part, all right? And it's a vivid reminder that though he claims to be going to worship, it tells us that worship can be used and corrupted. We can say we're going to worship, but we have no intention of worshiping. We can attend worship without ever worshiping. And that's a danger for any follower of Christ to to somehow think that I have showed up at church today, therefore I have worshiped. When in fact, worship is giving honor and value and worth to another. It's a verb, not a noun. It's something I have to do, not something I simply show up for. Well, the story goes on this after this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So the wise men bowed down before Jesus. It says they worshipped him. Imagine, these wise men from the courts of great nations to the east have come into the land of a foe, and they have come and knelt down and worshipped a king that is not their king at least not yet, and they've given him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, very expensive gifts. By the way, how many wise men were there? Three? Anybody agree there was three? 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 If you look closely at the scripture itself, it doesn't tell us. It tells us the number of gifts And so down through the centuries, we have assumed, that's why there are three names typically associated with the wise men, Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar. There are three names associated typically, but in fact, we don't know. The the scripture does not tell us. There's more than one because it uses plural, but we don't know. It's easy to presume there were three because there were three gifts, but we don't know. In fact, traditions have indicated there could be as few as two and as many as 12 if you start digging around and all that stuff. And finally, the text tells us that they were then warned by God not to return to Herod, so they go by another way, by another route. And there are a few important things this story tells us about worship, because that's why they came, worship, since that was their whole point, and it's what we are called to do as well. First, Worship is a choice to express love to God. Worshipers are not spectators. In other words, true worship is never about sitting back and observing. Worship is a verb. It's something I do. If I'm a spectator, it's something I watch. It's not something I do. Worshipers are not bench warmers, using the different analogy. The wise men humbled themselves before baby Jesus by bowing, and then they worshipped him. They, they actually did a physical action. And sometimes we need a physical action 
to speak into what we are about. And, and here's the thing. People are not the recipients of worship. And it's not about what we get out of it, but what we give in gratitude for all that God has given us through our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, so we, sometimes we talk about, well, I didn't get much out of worship today. The question really ought to be, what did I give in worship today? You see, sometimes we get fooled into a culture that says it's all about what I get. I consume worship. I come and how good a job do the singers do? How good or bad a job does the preacher do? You know, it's all about that. When in fact, worship, effective worship is when we worship him. He is the audience, not you. You are the worshipers. You and I, we're in this together. We have worship leaders who help us in this. But it's not ultimately about me. It's not ultimately about what I get. Zach Neese, who wrote a, a book called How to Worship a King, which is a book that our arts ministry studies, wrote, the cross proves our worth to God, and our worship proves how much God is worth to us. Am I going through the motions? Am I just here? Or am I participating? Am I engaged? Which leads to a second related point, that worship is not about us, but for God. To, to worship is to ascribe worth to another. And therefore, it's ultimately not about my likes or dislikes, but God's likes and dislikes. He is the one I'm trying to, to please. Because if I do the other way, Scripture says focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. You know, Christmas is coming up. If I, if I gave my wife a hunting rifle, I mean, I love to hunt. I think it would be a great gift for her. You know, I've, been, I've, been, I've used a 30-06, maybe a 7-millimeter 08. Or we're going out, we're going to go for big game, a, a 270 Magnum or something like that. Don't you think that would be a great gift for her? Yes, some of the guys are on board. It'd be like giving her golf clubs if she hated golf. Giving her fishing gear if she hated to fish. It's not about what I'm doing is not about her, it's about me. And while it is nice that we think about, we at least gave some thought, the reality is a gift means very little if it doesn't become something they desire. It becomes something they have told us they want. And so if, if I'm in worship to do what I want, I've sort of missed the point of what he wants. Now, there's certainly different worship styles because God created us all to be different. So there's not like one way that's right to do it. There is highly formal, traditional worship. There's very contemporary worship. There's very free-flow, expressive worship and everything in between. And it's not like one's wrong, one's right. You can do it this way. You can't do it that way. There, there's a lot more freedom in there. But the point of all of it is, is that we're different, we find a way that allows us, us to worship best. Because worship is not about entertaining me. 
then the focus is on me. It's about me and not about God and his preferences. Worship is about offering up through my mind, my words, my actions, love to God. I mean, if I'm standing here and I'm, I'm, I'm singing, but my mind is on the Texans game. Okay. Oh, come all ye faithful. Brady doesn't do good. We've got a shot. And if Gronkowski is still injured, oh, come, all ye faithful. <laughs> if somebody, you're talking to somebody and their conversation is totally different from you, are they, are they talking to you? See, worship is what we do for God. How we talk to him, not about entertaining us. And, and that's, a, that's a real danger in 21st century America that has gotten so consumer-driven that if somehow I don't get what I want, heaven forbid, it might not even be something, it might be something I need that I don't want, then maybe I walk away. And maybe we've missed the whole point. It's about, I mean, I, I think sometimes when I'm singing, it, it's not just saying the words, but saying the words to God. It's, it's in praying. I often, I, I, I repeat what somebody else is praying in my own mind and try to echo them back to God. Because I need, I have to do things like that to actually engage. Because if I don't, my mind starts to wander. I start thinking about all kinds of things. You know, your stomach starts to growl, think it's lunchtime. You start to think about the game or whatever else. There's nothing wrong with those things, except if the intent in that moment is to worship God, God's standing there saying, well, you say you're worshiping me, but I ain't seeing it. Third, worship involves sacrifice. If we're going to show value to God. What did it cost the wise men? It cost them time. Look, these guys came, we know at a minimum it was a 10-day journey. They gave up, they left their family behind, they left their responsibilities behind. They traveled in order to worship the king. And as they traveled, they brought with them things of value, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They said, we are not going to simply do that. We're not going to just show up. We're not going to do the easy thing. That doesn't, that doesn't communicate anything. We are going to go to the one. We are going to do what it takes if it costs us. They gave up pride by bowing to a baby that wasn't even the king of their land. I mean, think about that. Bowing and worshiping an infant. They gave up so much. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Pleasing to him, a sacrifice that is worthy. Are we giving up anything? We're called to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to God. A, a, a sacrifice by its very nature means giving up something of value to me. Something I would rather keep. Something I value for something of even greater value. 
A dad was complaining about the worship service on the way home. He said the music was too loud, the sermon too long, the announcements unclear. And his son sitting in the back seat kind of wisely observed. He says, hey, dad, but you got to admit it wasn't a bad show for a buck. Worship isn't a show. It isn't about what I get when we sacrifice our time, when we sacrifice our comforts, you know, getting out in the rain today, you sacrificed. You know, you, you, can, you can say, look, I made a sacrifice. Some of, them, some of the people who aren't sitting here, they didn't make the sacrifice. I'm not talking you to go out and brag. But I'm saying, you could have stayed at home. Some of you wanted to. Some of you still want to. But a gift means nothing if it doesn't cost anything. And to be here is to say something to God. When we sacrifice our sleep, when we sacrifice our resources, when we sacrifice our will, what I want, for God's will. And that's a challenge every one of us faces. Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. And every single day, you and I are confronted throughout our day with choices of whether or not I will do his will or mine. The Bible says, this is the true worship that you should offer. Fourth, worship reinforces God's importance in our lives. Human beings, we we live kind of by the out of sight, out of mind thing. It's not intentional necessarily, yet it when we miss or we neglect worship, it just seems like it, we kind of miss and neglect it more. We have this tendency to turn our worship toward whatever's important in our lives at the time. Worship is one means that God gives us to keep the first two of the Ten Commandments. He said in Exodus 20, you must not have any other God but me. And he said, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. An idol is anything that takes God's place in our lives. It's anything that I give first allegiance to. It's the one thing I cannot give up. If I can't give up a relationship for God, if I can't give up a thing or, or an agenda or a goal, then that has become my God. We need to reinforce our, our, our words and our actions with what matters most by being here. And finally, worship can be offered anytime, anywhere. The, the angels offered it out in the fields, didn't they? The, the host of heaven. The wise men offered it very quietly and reverently right at the, at the, at the crib. Worship occurs when I choose to offer God my love and my praise, either out loud or quietly in my heart through my thoughts. We, we can worship when something wonderful happens and we give him ex- praise and we feel excited and grateful, but we can also worship when something bad happens and we needed to keep our focus on God. There was a, a hymn that was, or a song that came out a few years ago, ago called, by Casting Crowns called Worship Him in the Storm. That, that on the surface might seem like an oxymoron. But what it says is, I need to worship even more perhaps in the storm when I get distracted away from him. I have to make that choice even more intentionally. We can worship in all kinds of settings. 
Scripture shows us that God's people have routinely come together to worship him on set times and set days as a discipline and a constant reminder of God's infinite worth to us, as well as coming together as a community of faith to do it together. And if we're not regularly offering a sacrifice of our time and efforts, worship can can begin to slip out of our lives. And when it slips, so does our relationship with God. Because worship is a verb. It's something I have to do. I have to keep doing. It's something I cannot stop. It's something I never achieve. It's not a, there's not an end point. It is a verb, not a noun. And worship, especially with others, that, that worship that counts the cost, that costs us time and resources, that challenges, that serves as a testimony of others of what really matters, says a lot. There was an elderly gentleman who had, who had lost his hearing and virtually all of his sight, and yet every Sunday he was on the front row of his church. And finally someone asked him, man, wrote a note to him, you, you're always here, but you can't hear, and, and we know you can hardly see. Why do you keep coming? And the gentleman kind of in large letters wrote, I want to show everyone whose side I'm on. Worship is showing whose side we're on. We are sacrificing when we could be doing something else. We are giving of ourselves when we don't have to. And there are a lot of people who think you're crazy to be here right now. It's a testimony. The wise men and the angels all showed whose side they were on. They were on God's. They sacrificed in order to show value and worth to their wondrous God. And we have that same opportunity every day. Not just when we come to church, but wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we can worship. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.